Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Ho, 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 Merry Christmas! Is that Santa Claus? Ho, 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 is that Michael? Uh, depends. Am I on your naughty or nice list? Well, let's see what's in Santa's bag. Well, if I'm on the naughty list, then you're probably talking a Commodore 64 or an Atari or something like that, and I'm just not interested, so there's the door. Oh, it's not even that. It's nothing! Ho, ho, ho. Wah, wah. Oh, well, better luck next year, Mike. Oh, well. I'm sorry. So, Michael, it is the holiday season coming up, and in all seriousness, are there any retro-computing toys you're hoping to find under your holiday tree? Well, that's still a little ways off for me. I generally don't plan Christmas stuff until about three days beforehand, because I just love crowds and traffic and, and horrible people and screaming children, but... Uh for right now, it looks like i got a snow day that's probably coming tomorrow as we record this. Um, while that's probably not good for my work habits, uh, it will give me the chance to play with uh, a new product that, that Ivan has announced. Uh, Ivan, Ivan Expert, and, and we will talk more about that later in the show. Fun, I said. So, tomorrow won't be a total loss. How are things back east? Well, no snow days here yet. I... Work at MIT and teach at Emerson, and neither one's been canceled yet, but that's okay because the semester is almost over. In fact, uh, it's been a very retro computing themed semester for my class at Emerson. Oh, in what way, Ken? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked, Mike. <laughs> uh, it would be the guests that I've had in my class. I wrote a blog post on Apple Two Bits about this. I teach a 14 week class in electronic publishing. We meet once a week. And for nine of those weeks, I bring in guest speakers who are experts in very specific fields that I want my students to learn about. Two of those experts this semester are alumni of Kansas Fest 2013. All three of us were there. And two of the other experts have Apple II connections, although they've not yet been to Kansas Fest. Sounds like fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed the opportunity to work with Mr. Kevin Savitz of the Antic Podcast. He gave a remote presentation from his home in Oregon about his transition from being a freelance writer to a publisher, as detailed in his memoir, Terrible Nerd, and then also some discussion about uh, Terrible Nerd itself and how he self-published that book and how Amazon isn't the devil. <laughs> well, a lot of my students, they want to work for the big publishing houses like HarperCollins, and they don't really see the ability for authors to publish their own work and bypass e existing publishers as being good for their job security and their professional careers. So being able to speak to somebody who's actually engaged in that practice is uh, was a unique perspective for them. So they didn't stone him? <laughs> Not from Oregon, no. I see. And then he also talked a little bit about his archiving of Atari magazines, which was a nice counterpoint to Mr. Jason Scott, who was also a keynote speaker a few weeks earlier who comes in, he drove all the way in from New York just to speak to my class for three hours. This, of course, is the school that Jason himself graduated from back in the 90s, so it's his alma mater. And he just did Q&A for three hours, talking about everything from Wikipedia to Sockington to archiving. Uh, he talked about the historical software archive that just launched at archive.org, which we'll be talking about more in this episode. Another guest speaker was Mr. Chris Lackey, who 
designed the foundation for what is the modern Kansas Fest logo. Uh, he designed the first three or four years that it looks like the way it does, and then Peter Neubauer took it over a couple of years ago and started incorporating Apple II programming puzzles into the logo, which is awesome. And then another keynote speaker was Miss Annie Linson, who, as far as I know, does not have a direct Apple II connection, except I met her at GameFest, which was the opening of the Art of Video Games exhibit in Washington, D.C. in March 2012, which I attended primarily to hear 8-Bit Weapon perform live. So if it hadn't been for that Apple II draw to D.C., I would not have met the social media expert, who ended up being one of the best speakers I had all semester. That sounds like it was a really good time. Yeah, I think my students got a lot out of it. I give them a survey at the end of the semester to ask them to assess my speakers on which ones they liked and didn't like to help me identify which ones to invite back next semester when I'll be teaching again. And I expect all of them to get flying colors. Great. Yes. And the only other thing of note that's happened to me in the last month is that I won in a raffle a Kindle Fire HD. Really? Yeah. I went to a sci-fi convention that's held in Framingham, Massachusetts the weekend before Thanksgiving every year, the Super Mega Fest, where I met Tom Felton, Eliza Dushko, Barbara Eden, Bill Daly, and Carol Spinney. Name dropper. And... <laughs> I'm sorry, was that not subtle? <laughs> My bad. Uh, Ken. Yeah, so I just uh, I bought a comic book which got, for two bucks, which got me my entry into a raffle, and I won a Kindle Fire. So I haven't even opened it yet, hmm. but I'm, I'm sure that it's going to be much faster and better than my old first-gen iPad. But I'm also a little bit hesitant to stray beyond the Apple ecosphere. Now, are you planning to do an unboxing video on your YouTube channel? Ooh, that's not a bad idea. I've been having some luck with that lately. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I shot two more unboxing videos last month with the Xbox One and the PS4, neither of which interests me at all, honestly. But I can't believe people watch this crap. It's ridiculous. I know. It's crazy, right? I know. But it gave me the opportunity to collaborate with Lon Seidman, who was on our show a few months ago. He and he invited me onto his YouTube channel, and we did a uh, first impressions Xbox review roundup kind of thing. That sounds like fun. Yeah, and like at once I dialed into his channel, he realized, Ken, this is actually the first time I've seen you live. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's right. Like we've seen pictures, and we've watched each other's videos, and we've talked on an audio podcast, but we've never actually seen each other. It's all so cyber. It is, you know? I mean, he only lives in Connecticut, not that far from me in Massachusetts. Oh, and I got a new MacBook Pro. Nice. How's it working out for you? I love the new computer. In fact, I bought a new MacBook Pro. I was so busy, it sat in the box for a month before I could open it. And in that time, Apple came out with a newer model. So I (laughs) called them up, and I'm like, hey, you just made my one-week-old computer obsolete. What can you do for me? And they're like, oh, just return it for a full refund, then go buy the brand new one, which is actually cheaper than the one I had bought. So I got a nice 15-inch MacBook Pro with a, a Retina display, 16 gigs of RAM, one terabyte SSD hard drive, and unfortunately, it's running Mavericks. Do you not like Mavericks? Is that what I'm gathering here? I actually do like Mavericks, but I hate running version 0.0 of anything. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And there are some very noticeable and obvious bugs that I'm encountering every day, which is disrupting my workflow and i'm very hopeful that a future update in the next month will fix it yeah ever since apple's gone to that the, the tiktok release schedule it's always a risk adopting the, the like you said the point zero release 
I'm sorry, I don't know that term. TikTok release. Well, here? they started it with the iPhone. Uh, you know, so the you had the iPhone four, which was the the leap forward in technology, if you will, and then the four S, which refined all the problems that were in the four. And so the four S was actually the one that you wanted. Then they did it again with the five, and then the five S. Um, and it looks like that's what they're doing with the operating systems as well. Uh, going back to what Lion and Mountain Lion and now Mavericks and whatever comes after it. So, so kind of like how Snow Leopard was a refinement on Le- Leopard. Yeah, I think so. Um, so uh, you can just uh, at, at this point, I, I'm I was forced to upgrade to Mavericks at work, but I'm coming from Mountain Lion, so it probably wasn't as big a shock uh, as it was for you coming from Snow Leopard. Right, I completely skipped line and mountain line. Right, so yeah, there there are definitely some. Uh, I haven't, I wouldn't classify what I've run into as bugs necessarily, but certainly some odd feature choices, if you will. Well, the things I'm encountering are definitely bugs. Where like the scroll bar stops working, or it crashes when waking up from power nap. Mm, I haven't seen that. Oh, I do every day. <laughs> Before we get into the main show, I want to give a shout-out to two of our contemporaries, a couple of podcasts that Open Apple listeners may enjoy, one of them being Floppy Days by Mr. Randy Kindig, and the other being Antic, which is an Atari podcast. But, however, but as Carrington said on the Retro Computing Roundtable, it's actually a really cool podcast, regardless of whether or not you're an Atari user. I listen to every episode in its entirety, and I really enjoy it. So I, I don't know necessarily what I can say I'm getting out of it, but I'm like, oh, I totally empathize with what these guys are going through, what they're doing, what they dig, and the interviews that they get are broader appeal, like magazine editors. I, you know, Being a magazine editor myself, I'm really into that. So, yeah, I highly recommend Floppy Days and Antic, and you can now find links to them on the nav bar of the Open Apple website. And isn't, isn't Randy co-hosting both of those? Yeah, the Antic Podcast is co-hosted by Randy Kindig, Kevin Savitz, and Brad Arnold. So the three of them take turns hosting, I believe, just like the Retro Computing Roundtable does. Although I think RCR is down to two now. I think it's just Carrington and Earl. That is true, although they did have Dr. Steve Weirich on for a while there. Uh, maybe I think that was just one episode, but maybe they're going to have a rotating spot like you and I do. I don't know. That's Carrington. It's not like I listen to him anyway. <sighs> that guy, honestly. Mm. Hey, this is Jonathan Zuffi, author of Iconic, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. Mike, have you ever been to the website GameFAQs.com? That's F-A-Q-S. No, I haven't, Ken. It's a great resource for computer gamers and video gamers. It has FAQs, frequently asked questions and walkthroughs to all sorts of games, computer games, video games, whatever. You know, whether you're playing an RPG or a first-person shooter or a puzzle game like Tetris, whatever. And so they break down all the games by genre, alphabetically, by platform, whatever you want. And so I went looking there one day to see if they had any FAQs for Apple II games. I was wondering if anybody had ever gone back to fill in that catalog since all the games came out before this website did. And to my surprise, there were a lot of FAQs on this website. And even more surprising, they were all by the same guy. Who would that be? That would be Mr. Andrew Schultz, who we happen to have on the show today. Hi, Andrew. Oh, hey, Ken. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to hear from you. I've seen your name, as obviously I just mentioned, on the GameFAQs website for years and years. And uh, I believe we have a mutual acquaintance in Mr. Wade Clark. Is that correct? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, we have unfortunately haven't gotten him on the show yet. I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Uh, but, but in the meantime, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? We want to get into your gaming history, as I mentioned, but 
what is your history with the Apple II? When did you first get into that? Okay, um, I think it was probably uh, back when I was about five years old. Um, what the heck? I'll put I'll put my age out there, approximate 1980. I think I was at a at a violin lesson or something. There was an Apple II machine there, and uh, they had a game called Gobbler, which I'm sure most people have heard of. And I thought it was just the coolest thing that that you could play a game and you wouldn't have to pay a whole quarter to to, to do it. Or um, I, I think maybe uh, I'd I'd been to um, I lived in West Lafayette. There's a locally famous store named Vons there. Uh, v o n apostrophe s. They had uh, stuff. Um, I think they had an original Zork sample there, and I remember. Uh, beating it, which I think was just going into the basement. Um, and it was, it was things like this that, uh, that, that really, um, oh my goodness, it's, it's, you know, I hear about, oh, computers are these, these big things and they, they allow you to play games and, and not just, you know, board games or whatever, but, but fun stuff like this. Um, but I think we actually did have an Apple, uh, before I saw Gobbler, but, uh, uh, it was always just, you know, oh, this is an Apple, you know, this is, uh, your father needs it for word processing or whatever, and, you know, you can, you can do basic stuff with basic, like, hello world, but, uh, it was never, it never really, uh, took off until I, you know, saw that and said, oh my goodness, I want these games, and, uh, <laughs> so, uh, that, it, it started there, I guess, I remember, um, we got, well, um, I don't know if it's, uh, we got some stuff that was probably pirated from some people who were leaving the country, and, uh, I remember going through these games, and uh, well, no, no. Were they be- were, were they being deported? Uh, no, no. It was just I think they were. Uh, <laughs> well, I I live because I live in West Lafayette. My father worked at Purdue, so there were visiting professors that all, often came from overseas, and so they just get rid oh, of see. stuff. Um, the 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 stuff they found the least valuable, and uh, some of that was uh, you know these these games that they didn't pay for anyway um but uh, <laughs> oh i think i think i think we all did that at some point yeah but uh i, I also um I, I just remember you know how hard some of these games could be and i remembered thinking wow i guess when you're an adult you understand why they have to be so hard and uh and all this uh i've you know i've along the way i found that part of that was just kind of bad design by people who were just oh man i can make a game you know and and people were just happy to have any game so they didn't worry about whether it was terribly fair uh, but as a kid, I remember thinking, "My goodness, this is this is really hard." And but it was really cool, and I wanted to figure out how to do it. As a tangent, I also remember uh, some, you know, uh, adults. Uh, not all adult teachers are like this, but enough of them were like, "Oh, life's not a game, son." And and you know, I remember, "Oh, a game like Zork or whatever that that's hard." You know, it's going to be really hard. So uh, it I just it took me a, a while to even solve some games. I just. Uh, it was it was always a neat challenge for me. Um, I remember developing um, Invisiclues for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. My mother brought uh, bought my sister, who's three years older than me, and me uh, Invisiclues for the game. And I just went through and developed them all. And my sister was really upset at me. And uh, I I just I, I remember saying, "Oh my goodness, how did they do this?" Um, what are Invisiclues? Oh oh Invisiclues. Oh sorry, I, um, they're from. Uh, Basically, Infocom had had the text adventure Zork, Zork 2, Zork 3, Hitchhiker's Guide, and so forth. And so there would be these books that they'd send out uh, because they they didn't have the space for, for hints on discs because it was only 140K um, for a disc side. Uh, you would you'd have this book, and it was blank, but you also had this yellow um, yellow magic marker. So you put the magic marker over, over the 
clue boxes below the questions, and it would r reveal the solution. So you could see as much as um, as much of what you wanted uh, whenever you wanted. So uh, I. I, I just I remember thinking they were hilariously funny, um, especially for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I sort of wanted to see how to solve the game. Also, I found you know the the fake clues and so forth, and uh, I, I it was it was it was just such a neat neat experience to to read that. Wow, you know people write this, and it was a big thing for me in terms of getting to read more. I just I just liked it. My my sister wasn't happy. She wanted to solve it on her own, but. Uh, you know, we weren't really getting far. We got stuck in the dark because we didn't have save discs. And <laughs> so we didn't get the clue that says after 60 moves, oh, hey, you know, uh, something stinks in here and it's not just your puzzle solving ability. We just, we just, we just cut off after 10 moves. And so, yeah, we got, we got stuck there. We wouldn't have finished it, but all the same, yeah, that was, uh, something. So I just, I just hated not being able to solve the game. And as I grew up, um, I got into role-playing games. A friend showed me Ultima 4 on his Commodore 64. Uh, I just thought, wow, you can do this? Um, and uh, I remember trying to solve it, getting to the bottom of the abyss, which is the very final dungeon. Uh, you couldn't save in the dungeon. So if you missed a question, uh, there were about 12 of them. And even due to a typo, you got kicked back up to the top. And I gave up on this uh, when I was maybe sophomore in high school. I didn't solve it until about 1999, when Ultima 4 was free on the internet um, as a PC game. But it was one of those things where I just said, oh man, I'm, I give up, I'm never going to solve this. Um, and then it happened one day, and then I said, hey, you know, why don't I... There was a good guy, guide by somebody named Dan Simpson, and I thought, hey, wait, you know, I have these details too, I'd like to add them. And it's been something I've slowly added to, where I could say, oh, here's how the virtues work. Um, and then I've gotten mails from people saying... Oh, by the way, you can take a Robin Hood strategy so the virtues just steal from Lord British a bunch and then give it to the poor people, and you get to be an avatar. And I don't think they planned it this way, but um, Ultima Force kind of been that big game. It was the first one I really wrote for. The other one was Death Lord, which you've probably never heard of unless you've poked around at the stuff I've written. It is a nearly impossible game, but if you like that sort of thing and if you like the kind of abstract mapping puzzles, it's wonderful. And so there was this guy, he was a student at Rutgers, his name was Wilson Lau, and I don't know what happened to him. He was, um, on the Commodore six, um, 64 version, he had some maps. I decided, hey, why don't I create a, a map maker? I found a bitmap format, and I was able to do that. Um, and just, the map started coming, we had a cheap one where it read in text, and it put out a bitmap, and then it just built from there. And I said, oh, wait a minute, there are other Apple files on... I found these other games that I never solved, and I looked through them. I realized that you'd have something like Shea Adams' Quest for Hints, uh, or rather Quest for Clues, which is wonderful. But the problem is, he only had so much space to put in his solutions, so he only took the, the very uh, the very most important stuff, and details like, um, you know, what, is, what does the map look like? I mean, it has some maps, but it couldn't put in everything. Uh, I said, hey, wait a minute, you know, I have the technology to do this now. You know, I can look at the disk image, I can do this. And it wasn't really tough stuff, but for, for that it was wonderful. Um, I guess Death Lord was one of those games um, I'm, I'm jumping around here a bit, but um, it was it was a game back in 1986. A friend and I joked um, there were six words and seven items to find. I found one after six months. My friend said oh Andrew, you're going to be in college by the time you solve this. That's going to be that's going to be really sad. And it turns out that I actually took twice the time that 
it would have taken because our Apple died in 1992 or something, and then we got a Mac, and so I wasn't able to play this game. I always wondered if I could, and then I started discovering that I could, and I figured some other people might do that too. I was pretty shocked nobody had done it yet, just written maps for any of the old Apple games. So I started doing that. I started doing that for games I didn't even know how to solve. Um, I guess I was just sort of fishing for anybody to say, oh, this is how you solve the game, finally. And in some cases it worked, and it was, it was just wonderful to get an email from somebody, I'd, you know, possibly across the world or something, uh, saying, hey, wait, you do things this way, and it works. And, uh, you know, from, from that, from winning Shea Adams's Quest for Clues on eBay auctions, it was really, um, you know, there's, I just, um, it, it was a nice adventure. Um, I, I don't know how else, how else to put it. It was, uh, write, writing all these guides was a lot of fun, and knowing that, yes, I've solved this game, I've taken care of this game. It, it started piling up, and we also had informal competitions on GameFAQs where uh, basically uh, CJC, the administrator, um, he had rankings of the top 50 people or whatever sending in by kilobytes written. So we just... Some of that, it encouraged some, some noise, but on the other hand, it also encouraged you to write more, and for me, it was just the right motivation to start cracking things out, or looking at this game, or looking at that game, or saying, okay, I have this text map here, that's a pretty good use of it, so I just, I just started, and it was neat to say, oh, hey, you know, I'm number 37, or whatever. There wasn't any huge competition or flame wars over it, but there were just so many games that I could look at and hadn't been covered yet, that I, you know, I, I sat back and I looked and I said, oh, wow, you know, I've actually written a lot, and I'm happy about that, I'm it's still neat to get mail from other people um, saying, oh, I'm, I'm glad somebody uh, looked at this game or whatever. Um, sometimes I forget about a game completely, and that makes me feel bad because, oh, man, I know I remember this when I was writing it, and I, I forgot to put it in, and this person needs help with that. And uh, so I feel kind of bad about that. But on the other hand, um, you know, there's uh, it's, it's not a whole ton of mail. Maybe it's even two to three people a week, but when it shows up, it's wonderful. And uh, GameFAQs also shows you the number of hits on your facts. And uh, I, th I think it's basically two million total hits, um, or 2.5 million or something, uh, since they started tracking it, which which is less than some guides for Final Fantasy VIII or something get in their entirety. But uh, it's still, you know, wow. Um, I've done this, I, I can see I get X hits a day, and so I'm presumably helping people and having some of my own little corner of the internet of stuff I've done, and that makes me happy. So, Yeah, I can see that you've contributed about 20 megs of files, 347 guides, 756 images, 503 codes for 34 different games. That was, uh, I wanted to hit 20 megabytes, but I just haven't had anything to write about, so... Um, I'm not. I'm not going to force it. I've, I've had a lot of fun, and uh, I. Uh, I actually branched out into Nintendo uh, Japanese RPGs, where because you have Google Translate with Japanese, you can do that. Because you have Japanese video sites um, that show you how to go through a game, um, you know, I can. I can do the maps, and I can say, okay, this is what it means. This is what. Uh, 
this is what they can't be showing you. Unfortunately, I've run out of Apple games. Um, though if anybody wants to poke me about an RPG that has maps that I can look at, I, I'd be very grateful because it would need, it would be neat to cover uh, one more thing. So we'll, we'll see, though. Uh, it's, it's just neat to say, yeah, you know, I, I wrote all this and maybe there's some noise in it or whatever. It's, it's one of those things. I feel good about it. I'm glad I took the energy to do that. I think I needed the break once I ran out of games, but now I want to go back to it uh, if there were anything. So Now, when you are playing the games in order to collect these strategies, are you using any sort of cheats or hacks to be able to get through this, the game more thoroughly or more quickly? Definitely. Um, my procedure was generally just to... What I would do is the disk image often had uh, binary data that would show you the map. Um, either that or the save state would. So I would just pull the map from the save state. For instance, if the outside map was 100 by 100, uh, you could just pull it up in a hex editor, make it 100 bytes wide, and the map would be right there. Um, or you would see something that looked like the map. For instance, the water might be coated red, uh, the plains might be coated orange, but you would just see the pattern. Um, and, and then you could, you could work from there, reading in bytes and so forth. So the map would be the first thing. Then probably cheating your characters up for a quick walkthrough would be the second thing, just to say, okay, I can kind of destroy everybody um, too easily. And uh, what are the main things you need to do to get through the game? And then the third thing would be, how do I build up my characters? Um, so it was, uh, it, was, it was really nice to be able to do that. Um, that just a simple hex editor could let you fiddle with the bytes and make your guys impossible. That's also one thing I remember hearing about, you know, the big college kids doing back when I was a freshman, saying, oh, they did all this stuff with byte editing, and it sounded so magical. And now it's just, okay, <laughs> you can get a cheap freeware hex editor and just, uh, oh, there's that number, and that should probably be it. And, you know, oh, here my guy's constitution is 23, so um, dexterity is 24, so you look for 1718, and... It's it's uh, it's it's arithmetic at that point. It's not trivial, but it's just oh my goodness, you can do this. So does that take the fun out of it, though? For me, it doesn't. Um, basically, because I enjoyed more creating the maps and seeing how it worked and seeing the choices that designers may have made. I enjoyed seeing the story. Um, I also. Sometimes uh, I guess I have these flashbacks from when I was uh, when I was younger, and I just have level grinding. Um, that's one thing that I don't really miss. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's neat. <laughs> I, I, it's neat for the first few games, and then I remember thinking, "Oh, geez, you know, I, I don't know." Um, just I mean, but back when you know there was an Apple, there were only maybe three or four games or whatever uh, at three or four big games at a time. You'd have Ultima, you'd have Might and Magic, maybe you'd have Bard's Tale. Um, there, are, there are a few others I'm missing, but you had more time to be patient and go through with things. Um, and now mm -hmm. it was almost, okay, I have these 20 games I want to get to. I don't want to spend too much time leveling up in one of them. So, uh, you know, I just, uh, I just get through the game, then I'd see where the bottlenecks are, and then I'd probably find somewhere to level up, and then I'd kind of, I'd often kind of cheat myself saying, okay, I'll save some time here, I'm able to beat these guys, um, and it's not too tedious, so 
we'll go we'll go with okay, hang around in this area and beat up monsters for an hour or so, or speed up uh, speed up the emulator or whatever to make it go faster if you're using an emulator, and that would be pretty good. Um, oh, that is another big thing. Um, I just uh, I, I it's it's sad, but I kind of lost lost the patience sometimes with the Apple disc loading. I love the sound of it, but just just the whole you know when I'm when I'm writing up the maps or whatever, it's it's just oh come on come on I want to figure out what's next I want to I want to do that and it's, I I miss that leisurely pace of just being able to go through and enjoy a game. I mean I enjoy it in a lot of other ways, but um, I remember just jumping through some games and not really um, taking the time to enjoy being in them. So. Uh, that's that's about the only uh, bad thing about it, and I, I think yes, there is. I mean, there are some games that you just just love and you want to play, and you don't mind leveling up. But there are other games where you just wanna you just wanna plow through. Um, and my aggressive strategy probably made me plow through more than I wanted to, but I think I still kind of enjoyed it a lot. So, now at what point did you go from playing games to making games? This this is a tough one. Um, I think. Well, we talked about Wade Clark earlier. Um, I hadn't really considered um, writing a text adventure until he came to me with um, Leadlight, which is a game he wrote for the 2010 Interactive Fiction uh, competition. Uh, it's a game he wrote on an Apple or um, Apple emulator in Amon. Uh, I I really should know whether you've discussed that in detail on your podcast or not, but... Um, it was on the cover of Juice GS a few months after it came out. Okay. And so we've probably mentioned it in passing several times on the show, but again, we haven't had Wade himself on the show to talk about it. Yeah, I, I think he'd he'd have a lot um, cooler stuff to say about it than I would. Um, he'd written a few games, and this one was going to, you know, try and be a t- um, more solid, you know, text adventure. Uh, and it's basically uh, a survival horror game about how. You're you're a girl in a boarding school in Australia, and um, everybody's turned into zombies. Um, and so you have attributes, and you have to um, you know you have to navigate everybody and make sure uh, you know there will be people attacking you. And there's a lot of neat description in there. Uh, a lot of it's it's a really impressive engineering feat because it's all in 140 kilobytes of data and. He has um, um, he has a, a revision of this, uh, which is actually going to be in Form Seven. If people um, remember the old Juice.js magazine, he had an article writing about in Form Seven and how relatively easy it is to use. It's going to be a sort of director's cut, uh, Lead Light Gamma, which which shows the tricks he needed to use to to get it to work on the Apple. Um, so uh, it's. Uh, you know, there is stuff that he just couldn't do that he wanted to do. And so he basically handed the game off to me. Uh, he said, okay, Andrew, there's, there's, there's stuff I'm probably going to miss, like having a missing go-to or something. He didn't, he didn't uh, know enough Perl to do that. So he said, can you write a Perl script that will track missing go-tos if I can dump the list of my game? And I said, I guess I could. And then... I, I said, you know, I was kind of curious about the game, too, so I started looking at it, and I, you know, I said, oh, okay, um, he said, oh, would you mind checking this, because you've, um, you know, looked at some games, I said, okay, sure, and then it kind of built from there, I, I, uh, um, 
that was kind of how I got my feet wet, just uh, going through the game, trying everything, trying to break it. Uh, and he'd already done a huge amount of testing on it. It had been a project for at least a year. And so then uh, I he entered it into the uh, IF comp, and then I decided to look at the other games. And then I realized that there were games from the years before as well that I wanted to look at. And it was a combination of saying, you know, gee, I can do this, and being totally amazed by some of the games. And then when I looked at Inform 7, I realized it was doing a lot of the things that I forgot I tried to do as a kid when I saw text adventures and tried to write them. And it made a lot of things simpler. And I didn't know what I was going to try to do, but I wanted to do this too. And I also noticed that, you know, the games in the bottom half, um, it was almost like I said, hey, you know, I can... Um, it's even, even the ones that didn't work, it was, wow, this is, this is neat. I can, I can see how people thought of this. And even if it wasn't, you know, at an Infocom level, I was glad they shared it. In the games in the top half, there was some, wow, how did somebody think of this? So it was an experience where I set, um, just, just judging for the IF comp, which was pretty much just assigning scores, uh, for about, you know, 30 or so games. It was. I said, wow, I want to be on the other side of this. And so uh, I said, well, what can I write about? And then I found something to write about. And then I noticed, okay, what don't they like people writing about? Uh, stuff like, well, there are a lot of programming projects you can do, like, you know, my apartment or whatever. And so I, I started eliminating stuff, and then I found a story, and I worked at it off and on, and it's one of those things, looking back, I wish I'd gone at it a bit more um, seriously. Uh, maybe not seriously, but taken more initiative on it, uh, and not just said, oh, this is just a game. Um, I really shouldn't be concentrating on it. I should be concentrating on more important things. Uh, when it turns out that I learned a whole lot from it, and uh, it's, it's just... Inform 7 was a really cool language because you can have stuff like, uh, my bedroom is a room. My kitchen is west of my bedroom. Uh, the living room is south of my bedroom. And the sink is scenery in the kitchen. And that's a game. It's not a very good game, but <laughs> it can be compiled <laughs> into, um, uh, or it can be rather interpreted into Inform 6 code, which is more technical. And then it's, it's compiled into a file that can be, uh, run on, you know, various interpreters across platforms. So it sort of has, Infocom's um, Z-Machine effect of having the one file that can be run on several platforms. Um, in fact, uh, the, the creator of Inform, um, Graham Nelson, he I think he reverse-engineered the binary format, which took a while, but he's a mathematician, and I, I believe he teaches at Oxford, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just impressive all around how uh, he creates this language, and then he makes, uh, well, with the help of a bunch of other people, um, he makes it accessible to people so that we don't have to worry about annoying, weird, binary stuff until we're ready to do real tweaking with it. So, it, it's, I mean, once I saw this, it, it felt like something had just dropped in my lap, where I have this opportunity where I said, um, you know, when I was a kid, I'd like to write a text adventure. And then in college, you know, I'd see 
computer classes or whatever, they never really discussed, oh, here's how to make coding easier, or here's how to um, expect a coding language to be relatively easy. It was all, oh, you know, there, there was a lot of competition, and people didn't talk about these things. They'd kind of, you know, do the whole, um, you know, puff their stories up a bit to say, oh, this was so hard, and, you know, it's, that's, that's how programming languages have to be. And as things get more complex, as computers get more complex, coding will have to get more complex, which is completely wrong. There are a lot of languages now that simplify things, and you don't have to do the low-level stuff like drawing a rectangle or drawing a circle. You can just uh, you don't have to do that code. You can just say draw a rectangle, draw a circle, and Inform does that with with concepts or whatever, where it says, okay, here's what a door is, and you can enter the door or whatever. So there's a lot of a lot of the the drudgery is done for you. The creativity is still up to you, but um, I'm still finding stuff. I started looking at it. Well, I guess probably in uh, yeah, October of 2010, I'm still finding stuff that, oh my goodness, Inform does this? That's so simple. Um, I didn't expect that, but I probably should have. And I'm, I'm even looking at the Inform 6 stuff, which is more of an actual programming language than the, uh, or lower level than Inform 7, where you can say, okay, if I change this in Inform 7, what happens at 6? So it's, it's amazing. Um, I bet there are a lot of people who just pull Inform 7 off the web, just write up, you know, their apartment or something, just say, wow, it's neat that I did this. I don't, this isn't going to be a game, but it's fun. And it's, um, obviously there are graphical interfaces to do more of this, um, that, that can create stuff in detail. They're all kind of Sims things, but Inform 7 lets you go with ideas. And so I decided I want to do this. And, I started developing ideas. I had to chuck a lot of them, but I also had to. Um, I also had some I really liked to work with. So I, I don't know if we want to uh, go into detail about what I've written, or um, if if you're interested in something else. Or well, I want to ask Mike. Hasn't learning inform been an on again, off again goal for both of us? Not for me. No, you never tried to do that. I thought you had. I tried it once. Yeah, I I picked up the. Uh, the guidebook on how to program in Inform 7, and to be honest, I never even cracked it open. I attended Carrington's session at Kansas Fest a couple of years ago, and that was actually my goal to learn Inform, was I saw it being demonstrated at PAX East a couple of years ago, and it looked so simple. I'm like, oh, I can learn this in a couple of weeks and give a session on it at Kansas Fest, because I love presenting. And then I never got around to it, and then Carrington gave the session. I'm like, oh, there's no need for me to learn anymore. But I, w I would like to, because I, I wrote an Eamon adventure way back in grade school. I did an adaptation of The Rats of Nim as a class project. And I'm sure it was awful, and I don't have it anymore. But, you know, my teachers, who knew nothing about computers, because they were a bunch of old nuns, they were like, oh my gosh, look at what Ken did. He's a genius. He wrote a game. I'm like, actually, I just used the Eamon Dungeon Designer or whatever. It wasn't that hard. Uh, but to actually, you know, be able to have, to, to be that impressed with myself nowadays would take Inform. And I would like to be able to get into that and try. And, you know, I, there are so many things I want to do with my life and I'll never find time for all of it. But that's one of them. Yeah. It, it is something that you can probably slip into, you know, if, if you find yourself, one, one big problem I had was, um, I guess clicking link bait or whatever. Um, instead of that, 
you know, I say, okay, I'll look at something in, in Inform I can't figure out. Um, I, uh, I also, there's, um, the I, the interactive fiction database, ifdb.tads.org. Uh, it has, you can look for games. You can even look for games with source code. And I think the best way for me to learn Inform 7 was just to pick off one of these games, say, wow, that's really cool. How did they do that? And then look at that. Um, and say, oh, okay, this code has to do that. Because if you saw some text in the game, you can just search for that text in the code, and it'll be there, and you can say, oh, okay, this is, this is, this is how this happened. Um, I also think that the IDE and the documentation, well, the IDE for Windows, um, the documentation is just some splendid examples. Uh, and you can't read it back to front. That's, that's not, um, it's, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be like that. It may just more be, oh, how do I look for this or whatever? Um, and you can just, you know, you can just click on a button, uh, if you have an example up, you can, you can compile the example and it works and you have that game, uh, right away. So there's, there's a lot of support if you ever want to get into it or look at it. Uh, there's also the interactive fiction boards, uh, I, do you know the name uh, Andrew Plotkin? Oh, sure. He lives right here in Boston. I've met him a couple of times and even uh, did an interview for uh, with him for a Computer World story I wrote a couple of years ago. Oh, wonderful. Uh, yeah, he's uh, well. He has that. He had that Kickstarter project uh, where he was gonna. Uh, you may have heard of that too. Yeah, I'm a backer. I get his monthly updates. Well, awesome. Yeah. Well, that he he talks about um, that some some of that stuff is uh, more. Uh, Probably deeper in form, in, in form than most of us want to do, but uh, he's he's just there on the uh, intfiction.org boards, and he's he's there to answer questions, and uh, his his work rate is just amazing with that. But you know he'll he'll get the the really tough tough uh, questions that aren't easily answerable, and then other people will pick up the smaller ones. Um, and I th- I think also there's um, there's sort of a an understood trust of you know, how to look for questions, um, and say, it's, there have been times I've said, well, what, what would, uh, what would Zarf do? I guess that's his nickname on the, uh, uh what would Zarf ask? <laughs> oh, should I be doing this? Um, or did I check this before I asking a question? And I've, um, maybe it could be anybody who does it this way, but just, just because he's able to answer these really technical questions efficiently, even though he's writing this, this huge, game and he's getting all these side projects that's that's just you know that's that's just big and it's it's a big resource and then other people who just kind of know a lot of inform maybe don't know the whole inform six they they can answer the lesser questions but um there's it's such a nice safety net to have he's probably a big part of it and uh it's um I, I don't know if I ever really had that back when I was taking programming courses in, in college. It was a lot more people against people. And, you know, I guess, you know, you expect to have this sort of safety net at work. Uh, but uh, people need to answer other people's questions because that's in the job description. If you don't do that, you're a bad coworker. But um, here it's just there's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff for free. And... Uh, you know, there, there's all sorts of documentation on Inform 7, and there's, there have been so many times I've just found what I can do. Uh, and 
I've, I've been able to figure it out, or I've been able to uh, find somebody else who asked the same question. And it's, it's really robust that way. Uh, so I, I recommend it. If you want to learn anything, and if you want to write a small game, it would be very nice. But it sounds like you're very busy uh, with a whole lot of other things. So uh, the one thing is, yes, it is... Uh, um, it is relatively easy. There will be people who can support you, but um, yeah, it's um, there. There are so many other things to do. I just chose that, and I went with it, and I'm, I've been able to do a lot of things uh, with the language and with writing that I didn't think I would be able to three years ago. Uh, a lot of people there are a big part of that. Tell us what you thought of GetLamp. Oh, GetLamp! Oh, is wonderful. Um, yeah, basically, I was at a GetLamp presentation. Uh, where Jason Scott came by. Uh, it was after uh, it had had several revisions and he tweaked a lot of things. So it was it was really, really in good shape. And, you know, he talked about how, you know, maybe the first few times he, he, was, he was still, you know, shuffling the archives that he... Uh, um, and, and putting stuff in and taking stuff out. Uh, it was... It was really smooth. Uh, it certainly encouraged me to look at stuff. In fact, I think I saw it probably about uh, August 2010 or so, and it encouraged me to take a look at things. And uh, you know, a lot of people on there are are still active with text adventures and so forth today. Um, they all seem to have other really cool projects too. It's 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 great to see that. It was it was very inspiring to me. It's wonderful that. You know, he was able to do this for potentially free. Uh, I just pay what you want to. Uh, and I guess he may have alerted, I think he may have alerted me to, uh, Kickstarter and so forth as well. And I think he also, um, managed to, um, uh, just, just being at that big session helped me pull, pull me into the, uh, Chicago, uh, IF group where we discuss, um, creating text adventures within form or whatever. I think I think that movie um, has uh, probably already has been transformative in terms of getting people back to uh, saying, hey, I like text adventures. There are other people who still do too. And it does mean something. Um, I also remember one big thing the talk he had afterwards was about how He'd finally gotten some of the implementers from Infocom together, and they said, "Okay, yeah, we knew somebody was going to get us, um, going to interview us eventually, uh, and uh, so let's have fun with it." And I guess it was at—I'm not sure, March 2010, PAX East, uh, where they all uh, had a bit of a roundtable, um, and so, so. Yes, I was—I was—I was in the audience for that. Wonderful! Oh wow, that must have been fun. Um, wonderful. It, it was a blast. Andy, Andy Malloy, and I were both there. I have to admit, I'm a bit jealous, but uh, I got to, I got to I got to see enough uh, from from the documentary. I think it's uh, I really really enjoyed it. Uh, I don't know what else to say. It certainly got me saying yes, it will be worth it to try and write stuff. I recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen it. Um, I am a bit ashamed to admit that I still haven't donated anything. However, it did start me donating stuff to Kickstarter in general, so um, I think there must be other products out there that are very worthy, uh, certainly deserve support, and uh, if they're half as good as GitLamp, yeah, definitely. I, I want them to get funded. So, uh, Andrew, are you are you planning to participate in Springthing? 
For those who are just tuning in, the Spring Thing is an annual competition for interactive fiction. I'm I'm thinking about it. Yeah, um, it's it's going to be a tricky one. Uh, it's I, the best I can do is waffle here. I have a game that I want to submit to it. Uh, however, I also have some friends um, where basically we're trading testing, uh, where you know I test their game, they test mine, uh, and the thing is that you find a lot of obvious stuff that. Um, in other people's games that you just overlook in yours just because you're concentrating on putting stuff in the game. I, ca- I can't say for sure. Um, I have some ideas. Um, I, uh, I, th- I have an idea for a game that might be in the 2014 IF comp. That's a long way off. Um, it's, it's too much in the air right now. Uh, but, you know, there, there are possibilities and I like having these possibilities and, uh, Right now, I have about a two-inch thick stack of papers on my desk because these are the ideas that I was just generally thinking up. It's not covered in them, but I'm revising my 2012 IF Comp game. I'm revising the 2013 Spring Thing game I wrote, which is now one million bytes of code. Also, I'm revising the 2013 IF Comp game. I'm trying to do that all by the end of the year. I'm pretty close to it. It's important to me to to polish the stuff that I didn't quite do. I really want to be in the spring thing because it was really fun last year, even though my game had huge gaps in it. I'm glad I did it, but it's also such an investment uh, that I may not have the time for it. I do, however, encourage people, uh, It's if they just want to look at some longer uh, games, uh, springthing.net, uh, it starts around April 1st. I already know that some of the games I've tested look very good and very creative. Uh, and, well, we like and we need voters. That's, that's, that's all I can say. I, I wish I could give a de- definitive answer. I'll, I'll know more in March is all I can say. So. Great. Well, we look forward to it. Yeah. Which, uh, which is also, uh, text, um, if you want to think of it as text adventures, that's okay too. I sort of do. But, uh, it's basically stories with a parser, um, or not. Uh, one thing that's really blown up is Twine. Uh, do both of you know what that is? Or... I've heard of it. Okay, it's basically uh, interactive fiction in Form 7 has the parser. Twine allows you to do a sort of choose-your-own-adventure thing where you just click on the links. Um, it's, it's, uh, one of the games in this year's IF Comp that I really liked was Machine of Death by a guy whose uh, pseudonym is Hulk Handsome. And... Uh, it's about a concept from Ryan North about a machine where you push a button and it gives you how you're going to die. Wait a minute, that's also a book and a card game. Yeah, I I I, I backed that Kickstarter. Yeah, it was it was it was worth it. I just read the book um, of of stories. I really enjoyed them and how so many people looked at it so differently. Um, I read a ton, so if you're wondering whether or not you should read it, it's 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 one of the more fun comp- compilations I've read in a long time. So. Um, I definitely give it a thumbs up. But basically, um, Hulk Hansen's Machine of Death, um, it, uh, he's, uh, from his, from his pseudonym, you can probably guess he goes in for, uh, a lot of jokes. And, uh, this one has them. It's, it's, and basically, it's like a choose your own adventure book. Uh, it's more suited to that sort of thing, although you can do neat tricks with it as well. Uh, so, um, that that would be something to Google. I don't have the links here, and I should have written them in my notes. Uh, but 
It'll have something like you go to a food court and you can order all the food there or you can uh, mess with a little machine. And uh, it has the big advantage over the choose-your-own-adventure books in that you can go back to the old page. It might be something more like having a fighting fantasy than choose-your-own-adventure, but it's it's worthwhile. The community is very supportive. Uh, the name is Twine, uh, and it's even easier than Inform 7 to get started. And there are some very good games in it this year in the IF comp. So anybody who... Uh, wants something even easier than Inform 7 that'll uh, give results, that's worth looking at. Great. Well, that's something to look forward to. Excellent. I'm glad to know that we will be hearing it from you again so soon after this episode. I, I hope so. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. Lee, the news story this month is a item from one of our former guests of the show, Dr. Steve Weirich, has been toiling away for years, literally years, on a book version of his website, the Apple II History. And by the time this episode airs, we are very hopeful that the book will be shipping. It's listed on Amazon and Barnes & Noble with a ship date of December 1st. That date has come and gone by a few days, and it still says the book is only available for pre-order, but Dr. Steve thinks that is because the book is en route to the Amazon warehouses, where they can then begin shipping them by drone to your house overnight. So congratulations to Dr. Steve Weirich on finally becoming a published author in the world of retro computing. Yay! Has everybody pre-ordered their copies? I, I should. I have a pile of books that I still need to get through. The Chicago Public Library spoils me, but this is one of those books that are, that are worth paying for and worth making space on my shelf for. Dave Finnegan posted a comment on my blog, and he said that while he self-published, he encouraged Dr. Steve to not do that with his book because David felt that a history of the Apple II would have a broader appeal than the more technical guide that his book was. And Steve did indeed find a publisher in Variant Press who has published other books about retro computers. And it's great that Steve has that distribution and marketing strength behind his book because I'm really looking forward to this being a success for him. Now, there was some talk about since this content is now a commercial product in his book, although it has been heavily revised, updated, and expanded, would the content then be removed from his website? And at first, the answer was yes. Parts of his website would be going away until such a time as it would not be seen as commercially competitive with his printed product. Then there was a about face, and he decided, or he and the publisher decided, actually, we're going to keep it online. So there will not be any changes to his website or any removals anyway. The updated material and the expanded and revised content will still be found exclusively in the book, but you can continue to rely on Dr. Steve's website just as you always have. Just uh it's one of those things where I just, you know, sit back and do the slow clap thing. It's 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 nice. It's nice to have so much that's free and people say, yeah, you know, we want it to be free or we're allowing it to be free. Well, especially since his website is published under Creative Commons, I wondered I mean, I guess the copyright is still his, and he can do what he wants with it, but my understanding is that you can't reclassify something that is already Creative Commons. Now, his book can be non-Creative Commons, because that's a new work, with all the work he's put into it. But the website, I I would be sad to see that go away. I wasn't sure if that would be in the spirit of Creative Commons or not. There's another book coming out. This one is capitalizing, or some might say cashing in on the popularity of Mr. Steve Jobs in the past two or three years, and that would be a book by Chrisanne Brennan, who was featured in the movie Jobs that came out this summer. This is a book called The Bite in the Apple, a memoir of my life with Steve Jobs, and is 
the story of Steve as told from the perspective of his ex-girlfriend and I believe the mother of his daughter Lisa. Is that correct? Lord. <laughs> you don't sound very thrilled with this interpretation, Mike? I think you put it succinctly, Ken. It's, this is a cash grab. You know, I'm sure she'll have some interesting stories to tell about Steve, but for me, this sort of book falls in the same category as those business books about Apple, how Apple turned design into billions of dollars in the bank. It's designed for business school postgrads and things like that. Those books are as interesting to me as this is. Yeah, and there have been plenty of books like that. I don't know that we really need another one. By the way, speaking of Jobs, that movie is now out. I don't have the exact release date, but it is listed as being available on Blu-ray and DVD, and also in the iTunes store where you can rent it or buy it in HD. So if you missed Ashton Kutcher's turn at the title role, this is your opportunity to see it. In the Apple iTunes store, it currently has a rating of 3.5 stars based on 212 reviews. And I think the iTunes store also pulls in the Rotten Tomatoes score, where it has a score of 26%. Three stars more than it deserves. <laughs> did you see it in the theaters? I did not see it in the theaters. I did rent it from iTunes. And you really despised it? Uh, I didn't despise it. It's a Hollywood story, and they're going to play fast and loose with the facts because they want to tell the best story that they can in the 90 minutes or so that you have to watch it. So I didn't really have the problems that everybody did about, you know, it's factually inaccurate, this and that. What I did have a problem with, one was Kutcher's performance. I felt like I was watching Ashton Kutcher try to be Steve Jobs. Hmm. I, I just think Kutcher was out of his depth. The other problem that I had was that, and I get that this is a story about Steve Jobs and not about the history of Apple Computer or, or anything like that, but Andy Hertzfeld's character had, I think, two lines in the film. Something like that, which seems sort of odd considering that he was one of the main architects of uh, Mac OS, which was Jobs' obsession for years. Yeah, that definitely did seem like uh, there were a lot of oversights. Certainly we've heard complaints from the Apple II community about the portrayal of Steve Wozniak's character. So I, I just think there were a lot of holes in the story that they chose to tell. And again, I, I couldn't really get past Kutcher's performance enough to suspend disbelief and get into enjoying the movie. I just kept going back to it. He's really, really trying hard to look like Steve and not quite. It looked like an android trying to portray Steve Jobs. The movements were just not quite right. There's, he got lost in that uncanny valley somewhere. That's just the term I was thinking of. So it's not one that I would recommend, but it wasn't awful. Did you see it, Andrew? I, I did not. I, uh, Pirates of Silicon Valley is kind of a bit of a flashback to me. I, I remember, I remember seeing that. One of the things is, I guess I'm not a big Ashton Kutcher fan, so I kind of... <laughs> Is anybody? I still am in tune with the whole retro thing. I also discovered DVDs of old TV shows, so those those take precedence. I generally wait for the movies to come out, especially when I hear, okay, Kutcher, yeah, I guess, you know, he can be made up to look like Jobs, but um, he has the mannerisms. Maybe he can method act into that, but he can't quite be Jobs. And that's that's what I heard and read, so I kind of passed on it. But I do want to check it out someday. This is not a film that you need to see on the big screen. Not like Gravity or anything. Michael Bay didn't crash three trucks into the Apple headquarters or anything. That'd be awesome. I remember way back, like one night, maybe in Genie, we were having some... I don't know why, we were having a discussion of... If Apple II users were cast in the movie Terminator 2, who would be who? And I volunteered for the role of the guy driving the big rig that the T-1000 hijacks at the beginning of the film. I get thrown from the truck and that's it. <laughs> 
I would love to have that role. Like, look, that was me. Don't blink. You'll miss it. Anyway, moving on. Back to the history of Apple. Much has been discussed recently in a brand new podcast, which the internet's been all a Twitter about, although we are, at the same time, cautiously optimistic about its fortunes, because it's only had one episode, and that is Apple Time Warp, hosted by Craig Johnston and none other than John Romero, co-founder of id and former Kansas Fest 2012 keynote speaker. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that is a huge name, not just to have as a guest on a show, but to have as a co-host on a show. I mean, that indicates a level of commitment and continuing content, which is really impressive. So I'd love to hear more of this show, but no episodes have aired since the debut on October 30th, Halloween Eve. However, it did lead me to click through to some additional websites that Mr. Romero has worked on and some projects of his. One of them is the Romero Archives that he founded in 2009, which he says is a collection dedicated to preserving the work of game designers and the history of game design. The Romero Archives is currently in the proposal stage with plans to launch in 2015. Online archiving is in progress. And as part of that online archiving that is in progress, he has posted some interviews. He conducted some video interviews with Nazar Gabelli, who is a uh, renowned programmer who also went on to work, I believe, on the Final Fantasy series for Square. And uh, he's also mentioned in depth in the Apple Time Warp podcast. That first episode is about an hour long. I highly recommend everybody check it out. If, especially if you are a gamer, which I think almost all Apple II users are to some extent or the other. Wow, yeah, I guess Nasser Yavelli is, is, is one of those names to me that I'd seen it, and then, wow, yeah, it's, this guy was everywhere. His game, Horizon 5, I remember absolutely hating it until I figured out what to do, and then, wow, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is clever. John Romero actually uh, wrote me an email once about, well, Wade Clark and I co-wrote a review for Bruce Lee on, on GameFAQs, and He's like, hey, wow, this is really nice. So it was, it was a kick to get that from him. I hope he's able to go through with his plans because uh, that would be neat. Yeah, he's a very cool guy. I was overwhelmed by the fact that he so readily accepted our invitation to come to Kansas Fest. I don't see that his slides from that keynote have been posted online anywhere, and I wish they would be because he went above and beyond and interviewed several classic game programmers whether it was for this keynote or now looking back as part of his larger Romero Archives project. But he like spoke to Bill Budge and Will Wright and Jordan Mechner and a bunch of other really storied names to get quotations from them that he used in that presentation. I'd love to have those written down somewhere where we can all reference them and see exactly what these classic guys think about the Apple II. Now, have either of you actually listened to this podcast yet? I haven't. I I, th- I think I'm going to very soon. I hope they get number two, too. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to, especially because of not only John's own personal stories about development in the Apple II game industry, but the fact that because he's kept up with the people that he knew back then and he's able to get names that we here on Open Apple wouldn't necessarily be able to get for an interview, I'm hoping he'll be able to kind of leverage his position in the community into some really neat content. That's one of the great things about John is he definitely has not forgotten his roots. And he even hosted that Apple II reunion about a decade or so ago that has been referenced in a couple of previous episodes of this podcast. It's great that he's using those connections in these various outlets, Kansas Fest, podcasts, and the like. Maybe we should try to get him on Open Apple. Although now that he has his own podcast, I guess we're the competition. You, you can give him a hand up, and then when he's uh, when he's all successful, you can do the whole thing. <laughs> I knew him when he was, he was just a rookie, so. 
Well, let's give Mr. Romero a break and move on to another topic. I want to mention Vince Briel's Replica 1. I built a Replica 1 at Kansas Fest a couple of years ago. Very cool device, and it has been sold many times over through the years. People who want a Replica Apple 1 can get one from Vince Briel, because you know what they say, if you can't get the real thing, get the Briel thing. So it's been 10 years since the Replica 1 was first developed and hit the market. So that's why Vince decided it's time for a product refresh. He's gone back to the drawing board and designed a new Replica 1. And he's calling this the Replica 110 because it is the 10th anniversary of the Replica 1. The uh, first run just started taking pre-orders on Thanksgiving, and only 50 of them will be available. There will be more available after that. It's this first print that is on a red board, a limited run or limited edition red board. And then he's going back to the traditional green. This new model has a mini USB interface, which is both a power source and a virtual COM port to your PC, I believe. So you can run your entire replica one from a USB port on your PC, which is kind of neat. No more power bricks or anything. And he says that he's limiting it to 50, as I mentioned, because that is the number of Apple One computers that are believed to be in existence. So he's going for a one-to-one ratio. The new design allows him to eliminate the 1 megahertz oscillator, And now the Parallax Propeller controller generates the system clock. There's a larger EEPROM, so you can now select between the original BASIC or the new AppleSoft Lite. Also, further chip count reductions. I'm curious to know exactly how many parts there are. I think the original Replica 1 had 88 parts. Uh, This one sounds like it's fewer. But there will be a full review in an upcoming issue of Juice GS. And by upcoming, I mean this month. Andrew, have you played with the Replica 1? I haven't. I have to admit, I'm not up on the hardware as much as I want to be. That's, that's another thing that I want to learn, and I've never gotten around to it. It's cool people are still producing chips and so forth for it. I, I, I don't understand the technical stuff, but it's still very cool. Yeah, I've always been a little bit behind on my hardware as well. As I've mentioned many times on this show, it was years before I finally got my CFFA 3000 and then finally plugged it in. The Replica 1, I haven't used much since I bought it because the day it was built at Kansas Fest, Vince had the keyboard and the monitor and everything there for you to plug in and test it. And I had a little bit of trouble finding equivalents on my own to set up my Apple 1. And also, I hardly have time for the one Apple 2 that I own. To find space for an Apple One as well took a little bit of work, but I'm very glad to have one. I bring it to the undergraduate course that I teach every semester and show it off as a prop to say, this is what computers used to look like. This is what they came as. You know, there's no mouse, no case, no nothing. And uh, I love being able to have that and show my students. I'm like, this is it. There's no GUI. There's, there's nothing. And there's yet more hardware coming out, or at least packages. Mike, you've been playing with the Raspel? Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, I think that's how that's pronounced. And Raspel is a combination of Ivan Drucker's A2 server and A2 cloud programs, uh, and they're designed to work with David Schmenk's upcoming Apple II Pie card. Both of these products, both A2 server and A2 cloud, were available before for free download from Ivan's webpage, but it required some command line hacking and some configuration. Not that that was a big deal, but this new package removes almost all of the guesswork. I would like to say at this point that if you go to Ivan's webpage, it's, what is that, dark pink and pistachio colored on a black background. Ivan, you're killing my eyes here with these colors. <laughs> but it's a fun read. Even if you're not going to download it, you should read his text because he's funny and witty and interesting. Ivan, fix your website. <laughs> 
This is a great product, and if you are going to be buying one of David's upcoming Apple II Pie cards, I highly recommend checking out this package as well. It makes the, all the configuration and setup of, of the emulator that runs on the Pi very simple. And we will have a review of this in the upcoming issue of Juice GS as well. It's one of the few things I look forward to in my uh, in my snail mail box. Really, it is. We love supporting IFConf. We donate a subscription every year. And if you didn't win it, I don't know who would because I can't tell who on there is an Apple II user. In fact, there was another prize we gave this year, a free copy of the PDF, our JuiceGS Concentrate, all about interactive fiction. And the winner of that prize lives like literally one town over from me. As you know, most people on IF Comp go by handles and are in fact also under strict rules about when they can and cannot talk about their entries, which is why we had to wait until the contest was over to ha- even have you on the show, Andrew. Is that right? That's right. It's uh, six weeks where you, you get a mulligan if you, if you kind of slip up or something and you don't mean to do it, like you tweet or something you don't mean to. Yeah, you have to keep, keep silent. You can update things. This is a really nice thing added by... Uh, I know his name, and I don't know how to pronounce it, and I should because he has his own podcast, uh, Stephen Grenade. He and the people involved have allowed for updates, so in case you make some incredibly bad coding that just kind of blindsides you, you're able to update it. But I'm seeing a lot of names here where, uh, you know, some people are fully willing to divulge, you know, where they're from. Other people, that's kind of cool about it, too. Even guessing who the pseudonyms might be, or uh, even seeing one, and uh, they kind of fade back into the internet. It's a neat side part of it. I assume it happens with not just IF Comp, but any of the uh, Ludum Dare or whatever uh, game jams there are. It's just neat to be able to create a, a, a pseudonym. So yeah, definitely. I'm glad somebody uh, got to that. I think they'll really like it. I actually didn't check after I got my prize. It's definitely appreciated. I, I have to say that when I uh, I was actually very thrilled that, that it fell to me back in 2011 because I made a lot of mistakes in my first game and it was a big morale booster at the end to say, hey, I I got something cool. I got something that I probably wanted to to subscribe to earlier and well, there it is. It fell to me and I'm going to be happy with it and I'm not going to spend it right away and it's going to remind me to get started for 2012. Excellent. Well, we're glad that we continue to feed off each other. I give you the magazine, it inspires you to write a game which wins you the magazine, which inspires you. Let's not break this cycle. It's a little exhausting, and I don't want to... I want to write a game that's that's worth the prize. Uh, let's say that. I don't want to write something half-baked. That's just no fun to the reviewers, and you deserve better. So, You're too kind, sir. Thank you. All right, moving on. What do we have next on the spreadsheet? It looks like we're going to be talking about joystick shields. Oh, Charles Mangan. We had him on the show. And he uh, developed the uh, Retro Connector which has developed into a full line of products, the first two being for keyboards, to use your Apple II keyboard on a USB-capable machine and to use a USB keyboard on your Apple II machine. Now he's done the same thing for joysticks. One of the products is already available. I believe this one allows you to use a use an Apple II joystick on a modern PC. If you want to go the other way and you uh, use a USB joystick on an Apple II, that product is coming in early January. It is not out yet. But the pair will certainly both be available soon, and we'll have reviews of those in the March issue of Juice GS. Am I saying that too often? Is this becoming one giant blatant plug, especially after Andrew just raved about us? Mike, I need you to be like an impartial filter here. Should I shut up? When was this show not an advertisement for Juice GS? <laughs> Isn't that why we started it? 
Well, you know, a couple of years ago, somebody I'd never heard of did email me and say, Hey, Ken, I would love to produce a JuiceGS podcast for you. What do you think? And I brought that idea to the JuiceGS staff, and we were all like, No, we, we don't really see the point of that. JuiceGS is a print magazine. Why would you do a podcast version of it? A likely story. <laughs> I think you just stole his idea and repackaged it as Open Apple. I thought you stole his idea. <laughs> you were on the no. JuiceGS staff. I pitched that idea to you. I don't read those emails. Right. They just get filtered right into the trash. Uh, kind of, yeah. That explains so much. Anyway, I'll try really hard not to mention JuiceGS again for the rest of this episode. Just after that sentence. That's it. I'm done. No more. No more mentioning the longest-running Apple II print publication. By name. Done. Anyway... So the Retro Connector Joystick Shields, about 40 bucks for the one that's out now. The one that's coming out in January 2014 is 50 bucks and lets you use a USB interface on your Apple II for a joystick, which is awesome. So 90 bucks for the pair, unless he has some sort of a bundle going on. I don't know about that. I would recommend he do it. I would actually probably buy this, because as Wayne Arthurton and Paul Hagstrom and I, etc., found out this past PAX East, we had a really hard time getting a working joystick. We were, like, in the hotel room at midnight the night before the event, trying to calibrate a joystick and not finding one that worked. And Paul Hagstrom ended up going back to his office to get one. Thank goodness for that last-minute save from him. But if we could have just plugged in a USB joystick, granted that wouldn't have been an authentic Apple II experience, but it would have worked. Mike, you want to tell us a little bit about what Mr. Scott has done with JS Mess? I'm not familiar with that product, Ken, as I refuse to acknowledge that it exists. What? And, oh, are you a little bit outraged over this? Why, indeed I am. This is such an insult. There's no Apple III emulation in the JS Mess project. Oh, the travesty. Uh, Back of hand to forehead here. I am so disappointed. So, so terribly disappointed. No, JS Mess is, of course, the the Jason Scott Mess. (laughs) Sorry, the, the JavaScript Mess emulator. And the Internet Archive, spearheaded by Mr. Scott, has gotten behind the project and updated it so that it runs in your browser. You can run it directly from archive.org. They've got a nice collection of classic titles that you can play right now, and the list is growing every day with more and more. Yeah, my understanding is that what distinguishes this particular implementation from the JS mess that has been worked on for years is the pairing of the software, the emulator, with the software that is in the Internet Archive archive. So now there's both the ability to emulate things and the things to emulate. So you can jump into this emulator, and if Pitfall or Arkanoid or whatever is in the Internet Archive, then you can play it. You don't have to upload a file. You don't need to find another website that has this software running on it with the ROMs that you need. It's all right in the Internet Archive. I think the way Jason may have described it to me was emulation can now be measured in time to choplifter or time to pitfall, where if you are writing a feature story or a historical document about this old game called pitfall, you can now make that word pitfall a link, people click it, and all of a sudden pitfall is running in a little pop-up window in their browser. It's not some recoded version that is trying to look like the original. It is the original. And there's no need to configure it or install the original ROM or get a hold of a copy of whatever. It's just, it's all right there, which is amazing. 
Yeah, now this is certainly not the first emulator to run in a browser, but it's the first one that has the might of the Internet Archive and the pure star power of Jason Scott behind it, so it's getting a lot of attention. I think it took me a while to really grok the appeal of this, because as you said, there have been Apple II emulators, there have been web-based emulators. I mean, Bill Martins, who we had on the show recently, has that amazing virtual Apple site where you can play tons of games, which is what this JSMS seems to be doing so far, which is playing games. But it's so much more than that. just that. It may not be the Apple III, but it's also not just the Apple II. It's a load of other systems. And again, it's all the software that's in the Internet Archive. So those two things really ramp up the scale and the scope of this project to something that the Apple II community itself has never seen before. And this actually sort of segues nicely into another story that we have about a young person who, thanks to this archive and emulator front end, was able to play Karateka for the very first time in 2013. The article is on Ars Technica. It's by Ars editor Casey Johnston, and she describes her experiences playing the game now. She is... I don't have the article in front of me because, of course, Comcast is a pile of garbage and I can't get anything to load, but I believe that she was... She was either not born or just barely born when Karateka was first... when Karateka was first released. And so it's interesting to read her perspective on the experience, not only the emulator, but just of playing these old games. Her second to last paragraph, I think, sums it up nicely where she starts off. Players of these games would have to be masochistic. There is a seemingly endless number of ways that you can not only die, but be compelled to start over from the beginning, set up yet another character, buy another set of weapons, and try to navigate between mountains just a little bit better this time so you have a slightly better chance of not dying at the hand of a giant pentagonal rat. So that's referring to a Calabath, right? Yes. It starts out with uh, her descriptions of uh, Karateka, but she does talk about uh, other games that she played. Yeah, she talks about a lot of other museums that I've had the good fortune to attend, like the Strong Museum in Rochester, New York, the Museum of Play, and the Museum of Modern Art at the Smithsonian, which is, again, where I met Miss Annie Linton, my guest speaker at Emerson. Yeah, she's really she really knows her stuff as far as putting all this review into a historical context. So this is not just a gimmicky, hey, let's review a 30-year-old game today, because there are YouTube channels that go back and review 8-bit Nintendo games as if you need to review Pac-Man. That review should be two words long, and it says, it's (laughs) Pac-Man. You know, that's your review of Pac-Man. If you want to review a specific implementation, like the awesome Atari 2600 version, well, that's one thing. But this is a really neat article she wrote, and I didn't see this on the spreadsheet for this episode of Open Apple, so I'm just seeing it now for the first time, and I'm really eager to dig into it some more. What I like especially is the description of the emulation experience and of these games through a younger set of eyes who hasn't doesn't have 30-plus years of Apple II bias or uh, even vintage computer bias. There was an, another article, and I don't have any of that information in front of me now, where they asked a group of kids to use older devices and things like that. And that was kind of funny and cute to see the reactions, but... Like you said, this is well-written, and, and Casey did a great job of, of laying out her thoughts and providing some younger perspective to this. Yeah, I've seen those videos where modern kids are given old hardware and software and told to figure out what to do with it. I've put those on my Apple 2Bits blog a couple of times. I can link to those in the show notes. I also want to correct where I said that the Internet Archive's uh, historical emulator is using, being used primarily for games. That is true, but I don't think it's... 
it's definitely not exclusively for games. As we are speaking, I am running VisiCalc in my browser, and that is awesome. Although when I was a kid, actually, I think I used to play with VisiCalc because, you know, I was a kid and didn't know really what a computer game was, so I would just pop this in. I'm like, hey, look, I can put numbers on the screen anywhere. You know, and that was the original appeal of, at least for me, of computers, is that you're used to a television being a one-way medium. A computer all of a sudden made it interactive where you could put things on the screen. And it didn't really have to be playing a game and fighting a monster. It could just be, look at all the power I have. Writing Hello World isn't fun, but it demonstrates the potential. And just being able to put numbers into a spreadsheet for, as a little kid was like, wow, that's, that's amazing. I could never do this on a television. And before we move on, I, I should correct that Casey is listed as an associate writer, not an R's editor. Well, I guess I, I remember playing Karateka uh, when it came out, and yeah, getting wiped out near the end, I figured... I, I remember getting a bit confused about the repetitiveness, and I was worried there would be some huge curveball, and then I guess it kind of has an infamous one where, you know, the whatever it is, was it, was it the eagle that comes down? I, I, I forget, but it was certainly a tough game, and it was another one that I always wanted to see how to solve, and I remember spamming emulator save state restores to get through it. And I'm, I'm glad I did, and I'm glad I was also able to do that and get both of the endings with the princess. I don't know if we want spoilers on here. <laughs> I, I think the statute of limitations on that is passed. Ah, okay, yes. Uh, the one where she uh, she actually kills you if you... I forget if you run in too fast or too slowly, she kills you, and so I was able to try both of those. And no way would I have tried that if I didn't have save states. So that, that was my experience with it. I'd also, also like, uh, with the whole pulling up VisiCalc, uh, don't worry, you weren't the only person. Although with me, it was more just having a calculator and seeing, oh my goodness, these numbers repeat. <laughs> that sort of thing. You know, I sort of wish I remember all the dumb things I'd been able to program as a kid that I really loved that seem kind of pointless now. The one I do remember is printing out dice rolls up to about a 100,000 times or so. I was just thrilled about it. I was, wow, it's been about five minutes and we've had about 1,000 of them. It's going pretty fast. It turns out, well, first of all, it wasn't really fast. I shouldn't have been printing it all the time. And also, the random number generator was bad because if you run the statistics on what I remember, the percentages were way off. They didn't even come close to 16 and two-thirds percent. It's one of those childhood failures you, you remember. Not a failure, but more silly stuff that happened when you sort of realize, oh my goodness, adults aren't infallible, but computers aren't. Wait, oh yeah, computers are kind of the whole thing with the random number or multiplying 7 by 7 and getting 49.00001. That's, that's, that's stuff I remember from just saying, well, why, why did this happen? And it opened up a lot of questions. I still have a ton of them, but playing with numbers, I think we all did it, or those of us who were curious, curious about stuff did it. So, yeah. Or those of us who had no friends. Like, oh, numbers are my friends. Well, I really like numbers, so thanks. <laughs> hey man, I'm empathizing. Don't worry. Uh, anyway, let's talk about some more historical software. The Apple II DOS source code has finally been released. Now, this may not be breaking news for most people because you might think, oh, you know, the Apple DOS that's been distributed on you know almost every Apple program that's ever come out, 
or we have decompiled it before, so what's the big deal about this? Well, this is DOS 3.1, not 3.3, and what really makes it important that the Computer History Museum of Mountain View, California has released this online is that they are doing so with Apple's permission, which is almost unheard of. As David Schmidt told me in an email, which he gave me permission to quote, the only interesting thing about this release is Apple's actual permission to leak any kind of intellectual capital. And and maybe the intellectual capital of a 30-year-old operating system isn't huge, but nonetheless, it doesn't matter. Apple never released Apple Works, despite our many requests. There are many things that they could do to part with from the Apple II world, and they've held on to it tenaciously. And yet this, they've allowed the museum to release, and there is also some original documentation from some of the creators of DOS. So that's uh, pretty impressive that this is out there. What I found hilarious was the commenters and on the various blogs that posted this news that said, somebody needs to download and compile it and try to run it. You just download the disk image. You have a compiled version. But, okay. <laughs> what were they trying to prove by making such a remark? Obviously, these are people who don't know anything about what it is we do. Yeah, but I'm sure we'll get feedback from the people that say, well, you should do that because it's there and it should be compiled. You should try and do those things, and maybe they're right. Well, this story was given many opportunities for people to comment on throughout the blogosphere because it was picked up by a wide range of news outlets. And Gadget, Gizmodo, Cult of Mac, 9to5Mac, Apple Insider, The Verge, and that's just a sampling. My news feed just lit up with people reporting about the Apple II, and it was on one hand, kind of baffling, but on the other hand, very encouraging to say, or to see, wow, people actually remember this computer, and they're talking about it. Any reason for that is a good one, in my opinion. I'm thinking maybe they just want to pile stuff just to make sure there are no typos or anything. I imagine Apple checked that. I mean, they <laughs> released it. Maybe some people, uh, just because assembly is so intimidating, that, yeah, I just, just want to make sure, you know, these old printouts actually do what they say. I'm not going to type all that in, that's for sure, but it is... It is neat to think of what it must have been like when this stuff just compiled and you just had the concept of files and being able to do that. There's so much that you take for granted and, and you want to look into. And I, I can see the documentation right here, but all the same. It, to me, it's, it's still like seeing a magic trick when something odd or weird or you can just build it. And it's more than just, okay, you have a bunch of DLLs or you have a bunch of libraries here and you just copy them over and there it is. That's kind of like getting something from McDonald's or whatever where somebody just kind of slops the burger in the container and passes it over to you. You're actually doing it yourself or finding somebody who compiles it themselves or has those instructions. It, it's neat to see, but unfortunately for me, it doesn't seem practical to take the time for it. I guess I sort of have, have to agree with it. Yeah, you know, what, what are what are these people thinking? You know, if you uh, if you all want to do it, yeah, you gotta do it on your own time. But it, it would be neat. Yeah. So the uh, source code is available in PDF, text, Microsoft Word format, and there are minutes of a meeting talking about it. There's plenty of stuff on the Computer History Museum website if you want to take a look at DOS 3.1. There was another museum recently in the news. Two episodes ago, we talked briefly about the Goodwill Industries Computer Museum with Brendan Robert, who lives down in Texas, uh, down in Austin, and is just a stone's throw away from that museum. And just in time to be a month and a half late for our podcast, I stumbled across an interview that was conducted by Slashdot with the curator of the Goodwill Computer Museum. They have a nice little video of her giving them a tour and a rather lengthy interview about 
what their thinking is behind it and why they save what they do. And uh, it looks like a, a neat place. And if I, if I ever get down to Texas, I'll definitely stop by there. I like how on Slashdot, beneath the byline for every story, there's a little trying to be humorous tagline for what department this story is categorized under. And for this story, it's from the don't be scared, they're just old computers like Grandpa used to use department. Ah, yes. <laughs> wow. Grandpa? Really? Am I that old? I mean, I'm not surprised that the audience of Slashdot would be interested in something like this. I mean, that's the kind of place I expect a video like this to show up. But again, it's still good to see people talking about this stuff. And this museum has been around for quite a while. If, if you subscribe to the classic CMP uh, mailing list, they've talked about this place for years. And it's been interesting. You can sort of, if you really want to, you can search the archives and sort of watch it grow from this little place where they were just stashing old computers that they didn't want to throw away into what it's become. And if you'd, if you'd rather start your own museum as opposed to visiting the, the one in Austin or in Boston or in the Silicon Valley, or I think there's even one up, uh, there are several up in, in the Seattle area, you, you can start your own. In fact, you can buy it pre-made on eBay. What? That's crazy talk. The Apple Museum, a collection of Apple computers, devices, and memorabilia, was listed for $150,000. Unfortunately, uh, the item has ended and no one purchased it. But if you had been interested, you could have got yourself a large collection of, uh, looks like everything from the Apple II era on up to pretty much modern day stuff. It says they even create a website for the museum and that you'll be buying the website too. I'm sorry, I might be um, viewing the wrong version of this eBay. Oh, here we go. No, I'm still not seeing a detailed list of exactly what's in this auction. Okay, I do see now he says a detailed list of everything that is included in this Apple Museum in a box is available upon request. Well, that's not how you put stuff on eBay. You don't say, oh, I'm not going to tell you what you're bidding on unless you ask. I mean, <laughs> nobody's going to bid on it. Well, not if you want to sell it. Right. I mean, these are some impressive photos. It's not just the computers, but they actually look like they're on display somewhere. Like he actually did have a museum. It's almost like a small Apple store with the way everything is lined up, except it's all really old stuff. There's uh, some nice posters on the wall as well. Yeah. I've seen a lot more of the modern era and Macintosh stuff than Apple II. I guess that's not too surprising. There's a Lisa II. I'm not seeing a Lisa I. You know, there's a 20th anniversary Mac, but then again, you're kind of limited in what you can actually see here because they didn't list they didn't list out everything that was being sold unless you asked for it. Uh, the guy does have a positive rating on eBay, 165, which is not in the thousands like some people, but it's more than mine. And he's been on eBay for 12 years, 12 and a half years, and the products would have shipped. Oh my gosh, that would be ridiculously expensive. Uh, it would have shipped from Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada. I always knew Canada was America's hat. Oh, hey, uh, I just noticed the paddles here on the uh, on the desk with the zoom in. That's pretty cool. Yeah, they really do have everything. Some of the tables are organized nicely. You know, you've got the, all the Newtons in one place, various power books and things like that. And then there's a table on the side, which I think you were looking at, which is it's got a couple of printers, a scanner, and a couple of Apple II Plus paddles, a Mach 2 joystick, just kind of random stuff thrown together. Well, speaking of living history, now you too can dress like Waz. What? <laughs> now, this is something that the coincidentally... Heck you say? Watch your language, sir. Now, coincidentally, I think this is something that we can both talk about, Mike, but I think you originally put it on the spreadsheet? I did, yes. And and to be honest, I, I have no idea what bizarre, weird internet K-hole I wound my way down to find this thing, because it's... 
It's not uh, referenced at all on their main page anymore. This actually dates back to about 2008, but I know we've never talked about it, and I haven't really seen a lot of talk in the Apple II community in general about this particular find. And what would that find be, Mr. Mike? You can go to Scott E. Vest and buy the SEV, the Sev Revolution jacket that Waz wears for $175. And if that's not enough, you can buy the Performance Polo for $30. And you can buy the Red Q-Zip pullover zip-up sweatshirts. And there's a whole big page of of how the founder of Scott E. Vest, uh, Scott Jordan, hooked up with Waz. And I guess Waz is now on their their on their board, but weirdly, none of this is on the front page anymore, and in fact, they have this thing called the Help Me Decide Product Selector Wizard, which you give it the type of person you are, and and it it recommends jackets to you, and I I could not find the proper combination of button presses to bring me to Waz's chosen line of clothing. What what was really interesting to me, though, was the the selection of Waz episodes. There are six short little videos, they're spoof videos that Waz start in. Now remember this is back in nineteen or back in two thousand eight before he was on Dancing with the Stars and experienced that resurgence in, in popular culture and mainstream consciousness. If you want to look at Waz and doing some really, really silly and kind of weird stuff, those Waz episodes are still available on YouTube to view. And they're absolutely terrible. They're spoofs of Star Wars and the Matrix and other films and wow, oh my gosh. Now, this is quite the coincidence because when my friend was up from D.C. to give her presentation about social media to my class, having met her down in D.C. at the 8-Bit Weapon concert, as I mentioned, she was wearing a Scotty vest. And I mentioned how I've been wearing the same winter coat for 20 years, and I wouldn't mind getting a new one. She said, oh, you should get one of these. They're really great. They have like three dozen pockets, and they're labeled, so you never have to figure out in what pocket did I put my digital camera? Well, you put it in the digital camera pocket. There are pockets for your iPod, and they even sell them big enough for your iPad and all this other stuff. So I was really thinking about getting a jacket, and then I'm looking at the spreadsheet for the next episode of Open Apple, and you put this on there. Okay, the jacket I was already thinking about buying comes endorsed by Steve Wozniak. I am sold. <laughs> So I actually went online, I ordered uh, a Scotty vest, I ordered the Brad Thor Alpha Jacket, which has 35 pockets, and I didn't realize that Brad Thor is a drama crime suspense writer like Tom Clancy, and this jacket is modeled after what his characters would need, so instead of like an iPod pocket, there's a gun pocket. (laughs) Okay. I mean, it has the other things too, obviously you can put whatever you want in these pockets, so it's not preventing me from putting an iPod in there, but I thought, this is a little bit too tactical for me. So I actually returned it. They have a very generous return policy. I ordered the Revolution Plus, which is a little bit warmer. only has 26 pockets, but it's the same price. And during checkout, I noticed it says, apply coupon code here. You do a quick Google search for Scotty Vest coupon code. You'll find something that gets you 20% off. Take a moment and do that and save yourself some big bucks. And will there be a review in just yes? Probably not. Maybe I'll model it on my blog so you can do a side-by-side comparison of me and Steve Wozniak. (laughs) Uh, I don't think I'll do the Matrix Star Wars spoofs. Well, now I'm doubly disappointed. I'm sorry. I want people to subscribe to my YouTube channel, not unsubscribe. 
But yeah, so I, I got myself two Scotty vests. I'm about to return one of them. I think I'm going to keep the uh, Revolution Plus. You putting that on the spreadsheet was like the tipping point for me. I'm like, now I have to get <laughs> It's a sign from Waz. It is. So thank you so much for making me buy my first new winter coat since I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> There's also some interesting footage that, that Scott Jordan has posted. Looks like him at Waz's birthday party, so that's kind of a cool personal moment to see. I guess wow. clo- close friends or something. I wonder if, if I wear my coat, if I'll get invited to his birthday party. I'm sure you will. He'll just show up at your door. You know what? This is actually ideal for those of you who, who want that, that feel of Waz around you all the time but don't have an actual Apple II and don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to just book his speaking schedule out for the entire year so he just comes and hangs out at your house the whole time. You can instead get one of these jackets. And just feel like you're being hugged by Waz 24-7. And maybe you take it with you to Kansas Fest, and if he shows up, maybe he'll sign it. Hey. Because he signs everything. <laughs> That's true. Like your Apple Three. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Oops. All right, let's uh, wrap up this episode. We have two pieces of software that have come out. One's uh, an update. One's a new release. Let's do the update first. Sweet sixteen three point oh point two. This is, of course, the Mac OS X based emulator of the Apple II GS written by Eric Sheppy Shepard. Version 3.0 debuted at Kansas Fest and he was convinced that a Kansas Fester would find some bugs that he would have to fix and that was true. 3.0.1 came out August 12th and now here we are three months later with another slight update that has a couple of bug fixes, some cleaned up debugger code and some additional features to the debugger. Doesn't look like a huge update. Version 3.0.1 actually had 12 changes to it. This one only has 7, so a bit more than half. But I confess, I haven't actually updated to version 3.0 yet. I'm still at 2.3.1, which came out two and a half years ago. I was actually running a lot of old software under Snow Leopard. I just never got around to updating it. When I updated to Mavericks, I updated almost everything. Like, I got new versions of Graphic Converter and Delicious Library and Text Editor, or uh, BB Edit, rather. Stuff I've been putting out for years. So I really should just update Sweet 16. That way I'll have the latest of everything. Have any of you guys started using version 3.0 which or later, which came out in July? Five Windows, so unfortunately uh, not. It looks it looks neat, though. Um, I really haven't played enough with the 2GS emulator. I'd love to. I'd, I'd love to. There are so many games. That, actually, this is something I, I forgot to, to complain about when we were talking about me. Is, uh, I, I remember I really wanted a 2GS really badly. One of my friends had it, and he and I used to make fun of my friend who uh, who had the Commodore 64 and showed me Ultima and Bard's Tale 2 and stuff, being 12 or 13 years old or whatever. You, know, you kind of turned the guns on... Uh, on our Commodore friend once they started putting out the Apple games and not for the Commodore. But then my friend with the 2GS kind of turned the guns on me once I didn't have a 2GS. There's a part of me that still sees it as that sort of holy grail out there that I want to look into that I never really poked around at. I guess Windows has decent stuff. It seems natural that, yeah, the Macintosh would have the better emulator. So all those FAQs you've written have all been for 8-bit games? They've usually been for stuff that's uh was ported between Apple and PC and, and the Commodore. And the thing is, the 8-bit games, they are more contained, so I can find out everything about them. There's the part of me that wants to find out everything about a game, and I'm not happy until I do. And one of the ways to do that is to kind of decode the binary files or be sure that there's not too much in there so that, so that there isn't a, a huge world, say... Uh, 4,000 by 4,000 map. I could do that. With with the smaller stuff, yeah, it's it, it's almost exclusively 8-bit stuff that I look at, although there are some uh, PC games, like later versions of Load Runner, because Load Runner is still Load Runner. I've, I've mostly been hitting that. I, I did, however, write for Tower of Myra Glen. I think I wrote a, a fact for that. 
it will not get accepted on GameFAQs because it's too much of a niche, and it would be the only fact for the 2GS system, and it's too hard to add a, add a system just for one guide, but uh, I'm still glad I did it. I, I remember seeing... I forget the website, but I stumbled on it. They were using my maps. I said, hey, guys, I'm glad you were using, um, people are using my maps. I said, oh, you're the map writer. <laughs> it's really great to see you. So uh, I actually checked the thread uh, a couple of years later, and they were wondering if I was dead or something because I hadn't written anything in a while. And I didn't know whether to post there or not. That would be neat. I know there are some 2GS games I want to look at, but there's just so much else to do in general. I feel snowed under, not with, you know, actual work or just but stuff I want to do, like old TV shows and writing games and so forth. Maybe, for me, having the 2GS be a holy grail sort of thing to, to poke at one day, I still like it having that mystique for me, because I'm more a 2C and 2E person, and we never did get a 2GS. Sometimes wanting something is better than having it, although I do remember my friend who turned his guns on me about never getting a 2GS. He did show me a lot of good stuff. I would like to see some of it, just... Ah, don't have the time. I don't know where to start. Anyway, that's my story. Well, there's a new game for you to play and maybe do an FAQ about, and that would be Lamb Chops. Have you heard of that one? I heard of it a day ago, or two ago, actually, when you sent me the links of, uh, <laughs> of what to look at. So it was, it was it was fun. It felt like I could say, okay, I'm, I'm researching for my uh, appearance here. And it's, it's great that people are still uh, putting this together. I, I like the ending, too, when you lose. It had a good deal of humor in it. Oh, I didn't actually. I don't think I actually got that far. I, I don't lose at games, so I, I didn't get to see that. <laughs> I tend to flame out very badly. I either space out, or I just I'm just not very good at uh, action stuff in the first place. Hmm. That's one of the things, actually, when you're writing guides and you're not good at reflexes and so forth. You you have to find certain ways to do things, and so it helps you write down. Okay, well, you really have to do this, and you have to spell it out for your own self, and so that helps. I'd like to look into it and, and other games that, that people have made. I was surprised to learn how many of the Apple games that I played when I was younger were by people who were in college or maybe even in high school. Oh, sure. I guess Cops and Robbers was a big one. That's C-O-P-T-S. The guy actually emailed me about it saying, oh, thanks for keeping my game alive. I remember it had this maze where it had a, an easy, medium, and hard maze, and I never got through the hard maze, and it was... It was a breeze with an emulator where you just took screenshots and pasted them together. But as a kid, I remember saying, wow, you know, this is, this is, this must be huge and enormous. And, and the map wrapped around itself. It was five screens by five screens. And looking back, oh yeah, I can see how somebody would do that in high school. And you wouldn't have to take advanced placement computer science to know it. <laughs> I actually flamed out on machine language and never really looked at it. I would love to do that. But in the meantime, it's great to see people who were able to learn it and go through with it, like Richard Garriott or, or John Romero or any of these people you've probably discussed before. Just seeing that, part of me says, yeah, if these people did it with no internet guides, like, I forget, I think it's Nick Morgan at some 6502 site, he had this absolutely brilliant, maybe it's not brilliant so much as just showing how it works, one of those snake games where you gobble the box and the snake gets longer and so forth, and he just documented how to do this and why it was so simple and why the snake broke off after 200, it got 256 blocks long. And I remember looking at him and saying, oh, of course, geez, this makes so much more sense than a textbook. <laughs> it's cool to see people writing this stuff, presumably from scratch on an Apple, they still want to do it, knowing that, yeah, these, these people who wrote this stuff, they didn't let 
stuff like, oh, I need a computer science degree to get in the way. I think my parents may have suckered me with that. Oh, you probably need a computer science degree to write games like that, so, you know, that's why you should study. And I guess I forgive them for that, <laughs> but uh, they were kind of blackmailing me a little, but I guess we all have to be blackmailed to learn stuff when we're 10 or whatever. Well, to back up for a bit, Lamb Chops is a game from Mr. Brian Peachy, who was on our show way back in April 2012, almost two years ago now. Wow. Uh, it's not his first game. He's written games like Surf Shooter and Deadly Orbs and Double Deadly Orbs. Can't forget that one. But this is his first game that has been written in assembly language. Now, this has long been a goal of his to learn assembly language. And what motivated him to finally do it was that he now has a deadline and Open Apple has the exclusive scoop on why he had a deadline to learn assembly. What finally got him off his duff to do it. Can anybody guess? The only one I, I can think of is, I, I hope it's uh, not a life or death thing. That's, that's, that's <laughs> unfortunately my first thought. Given the laughter, it sounds like it's not. So, Well, technically you're correct. It's a life or a death thing. Fortunately, it, you're right in the former half of that camp. Mr. Peachy is going to be a daddy. He got married shortly after he appeared on Open Apple, and now he and his wife decide to expand the family, and he wanted to get this out of the way before his life is consumed with changing diapers. Awesome. Well, yeah, it's, that's the opposite of what I thought, so that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so a big congratulations to Brian and his family from Open Apple. Yay! I'm a bit jealous, too. Maybe, maybe one day. <laughs> and we got a game out of it. <laughs> Brian, you should have kids more often. <laughs> Don't tell your wife. Shh. So, yeah, if you want to check out Lamb Chops, it's sort of a cross between Robotron and Oregon Trail in that you are in a forest protecting your sheep from bears. So you're a hunter kind of or a farmer, either way, going around shooting the bears as they come out of the woods to make sure that your sheep can make it from one side of the woods to the other. There are also some UFOs. I don't know what's going on there. Maybe they want to probe you. That's not for me to know. Anyway, yeah, it's kind of cool game, and I uh, recommend it. Yeah, you can shoot the lambs, too. Yeah, I heard about that. I don't know why you would, though. That's kind of barbaric. I mean, just in terms of the sort of mistakes you can make, it's cool that he thought of that, not because... Oh, sure, like fr like friendly fire. Gotcha. All right, and uh, that is the summation of what's happened in the Apple II world since you last tuned in to the Open Apple podcast. I don't think I'm missing anything of great import. It's been great having you on the show, sir. I hope that your name permeates throughout the community beyond just those of us who have gone to GameFacts.com. Well, I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate you having me on. Wow, it was, it, was, it was very cool the whole process. I hope it works out well for you too. No regrets here. We've we've never regretted having a guest on. You're not the first. Okay, thank you so much, Dan. All right, thank you. We'll see you around the community. Talk to you later. Sounds great. Good night now. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. They win a couple of IF comps and they think they're God.